This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Stephanie Payne, CFO of HealthBox, and you're listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 337. You know, the, the budget was a loose framework, for lack of better terms. I mean, people didn't necessarily uh, spend it right according to their budgets. And it was, it was understandable because we were growing so fast and, you know, the bot that, you know, all those investments were being covered up with growth. And so when I got here, um, if we were going to be public, that had to change. And so I talked a lot to the team about this idea of uh, balancing growth with profitability. And, you know, if we were going to go out there to the street and say it, then we had to hold ourselves accountable internally and set up a, a process where we could make that happen. And so uh, Brian Halligan, our CEO, bought into that, and he even coined the term, we're going to make the budget a first-class citizen. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. On today's show, we speak to John Kinzer, CFO of HubSpot. Back in 2014, after taking HubSpot public, John and his team laid out a vision that included achieving steady improvements to the bottom line. Post-IPO, he stuck a stake in the ground to be cash flow positive in 2016. HubSpot hit that first bottom line milestone in late 2015. Find out how John and his team has continued to meet its profitability milestones after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. Hello, we're speaking to John Kinzer, CFO of HubSpot, the inbound marketing and sales SaaS company where he manages finance and operations today. A while back, he played a key role in HubSpot's initial public offering. Prior to HubSpot, John served as CFO for Blackboard, a leading SaaS education company. And he also uh, played a key role there in Blackboard's uh, public first initial public offering in 2004. John, welcome. Thank you. Well, it's great to have you. I, I wanted to... Uh, find out more about HubSpot. I, uh, it's a company I'm familiar with being in the uh, digital media realm, uh, but it would be uh, interesting to hear more from you. But first, we always like to uh, take a step back in time uh, with our guests, John, and ask them to share 
uh, some of those career experiences uh, that helped prepare them for the role they play today? What, what, what comes to mind for you? Yeah, so I would uh, the first one I would uh, I would talk about was uh, MCI. MCI, the telecommunications company, was my second job out of school, and uh, I started in more of a accounting role. And I remember sitting in the closed meetings, and the accounting people were on one side of the table, and the uh, business planning people were on the other side of the table, and just. Through those meetings, uh, I, I was really interested in how the business planning people um, thought about the business, uh, thought about how the results would impact the forward-looking uh, impact of the business. And so I was kind of uh, interested in that in that uh, role in finance. Thankfully, an opportunity came up in the, um, in the planning group uh, at MCI we were separated as business markets and consumer markets. And the consumer markets was much more, um, the acquisition was uh, actually calling people. For some of the older people in your audience, they'll remember that. And don't hate me for that part of it. But anyway, um, there's a, part, a por- portion of the uh, business markets, the small business group, that was much more, telemarketing like consumer and so they were going to move that into the consumer business and call it mass market and so they had a new uh, role as manager of the small business planning group and so they asked me to move over into that role and I jumped at it and there was a couple interesting things that happened in that role one you were actually taking a part of a business and moving it throughout the company and you can imagine with a plan transfer, whoever's giving it away wants to give away as much as possible, and whoever's receiving it wants to get as little as possible. And so really needed to understand the players and develop relationships with them as well as to really have the facts and really understand the trends of the business so we could do that fairly. And thankfully, it came off without a hitch, and uh, the small business group was much more successful in its new home. So that was kind of the first. I would say um, the second was I went to a fast-growing .com in 1999. It was uh, in the digital coupon space. A little bit before its time, when you think about the the likes of the living socials and the Groupons of the world. And uh, I went in there. We actually took the company public on the Swiss Stock Exchange, which was uh, definitely an interesting experience. Uh, Unfortunately, the uh, bubble burst, and that company uh, ended up not doing very well. But I, I developed a great relationship with uh, CFO at Ascensus, and he actually referred me to Blackboard to be their head of financial planning and analysis. And you know, I think it just tells you that you know, in any company, no matter how well it's doing, you can still learn a lot, as well as develop relationships that can help you in the future. And then the final one I would say is when I was at Blackboard, uh, Blackboard was doing really well. We'd been public. And the CFO left about four to five years in while I was there. And the, the uh, CEO came to me and uh, another um, high-level executive in finance and said that he was going to put both of us up to the board for the CFO role. And unfortunately, I didn't get it. And at that point, you know, I, I had to do a lot of soul searching. It was a bit of an ego blow, and I had to decide if that's where I wanted to stay. 
thankfully I realized that I could still grow there. I could still learn a ton. And I had a really good relationship with the, uh, the guy that actually got the job. And so I stuck it out. I learned a bunch and he ultimately moved on and I got my first CFO role. So I think it really shows you that you have to sometimes put title aside and make sure you're in a situation in a growing company or in a situation where you're still developing yourself. And if you are, then, you know, that's a great place to be. What, what year was the, uh, was it uh, 2004, the, the IPO uh, for, for Blackboard? Uh, Blackboard yes. Uh, yes, that's correct. And then when you jump to HubSpot, uh, do you come in as the CFO? I did, yes. And tell us something about that role. When you arrived, what exactly was the job or the role you envisioned for yourself there? Is it similar to what uh, you, you were doing at Blackboard, or what was this, the uh, order of business? Yeah, it was similar, just obviously at an earlier stage. Um, when I got there, uh, finance was more of uh, a nuts and bolts operational team and get the books closed, some very uh, low-level forecasting and planning. And really, um, I know that I knew that the finance team needed to become more of a trusted business advisor, both the team as well as myself. And so what I really started out to do was develop relationships across the management team and start developing my team to create relationships with those, those leaders so that we could start partnering with the business. We could really work with them as we planned and, you know, started to get ready to think about being public. And so um, that was really the goal. And, uh, you know, thankfully uh, really brought in some really talented people and, you know, finance now and, you know, for the last couple of years is really seen as a partner to the business, working through making sure we're making the best financial decisions and investments that continue to grow the business. Yeah, that's uh, um, after the IPO, what then becomes the milestones? I have to believe that's that's sort of a, where you t- stop and catch your breath and, uh, you know, set the stage for uh, the next level. What would you tell us about that mindset? Yes. So the good. So when we went public, we laid out a vision to investors that you know we really embraced as a as a a management team, and that was that we you know we had a huge opportunity, really untapped. We we thought we could grow really fast, but we wanted to show steady improvement on the bottom line. We were losing money when we went public, uh, but you know that's that's not uncommon in the SaaS world given the big investments you make to acquire customers. But once you get those customers past their acquisition period, you know, thankfully we have very high gross margins. It becomes very profitable. And so really the, the early stage was, and there's a couple of different flavors of profitability. The first thing we wanted to get was operating cash flow profitability. And because we were taking, we get about six to seven months upfront in payments on average from our customers. We don't get the year, two years, is maybe more like an enterprise company, but we still get six to seven months. So we're able to, you know, work with our customers' cash. And so we actually put a stake in the sand that we wanted to be operating cash flow positive in 16, and we actually hit that in late 15. And then um, we wanted to get free cash flow positive. So even, you know, when we backed out our CapEx uh, requirements, that was the next stage. And we hit that about a year later. 
And then the next one is to get non-GAAP profitable, and we hit that earlier this year. And so we constantly put these stakes in the sand and started delivering at them. Now, all of these, theoretically, we could have hit earlier, but we wanted to grow as fast as we can because, obviously, you know, we're in a bit of a land grab mode, and once you get those customer relationships, they stay with you for a long time. And so we were balancing that, you know, making investments in the business, but continuing to show the street that we were delivering on the promises we made when we went public. So you've revealed some of what uh, sort of the relationship is with your customers, but could you explain better for us what are the products or services uh, that uh, HubSpot offers today, and what is its competitive edge, really? Yeah, so HubSpot started as a marketing software company, um, really at the top of the funnel. How you turn or bring strangers to your website, how you turn those strangers into visitors. And that was really the first four years of the company. Um, tools like uh, blogs and uh, search engine optimization tools, um, things like that. And then because our customers started getting all these visitors or website, they wanted to convert those visitors to leads. And so then we moved further down the funnel, more into that marketing on automation layer, things like email automation, um, calls to action, landing pages, things like that. And so that was kind of the next four years of the company. Then in the last three or four years, we've actually moved even farther down the funnel. And now how do we convert those leads into customers? And uh, with some sales, um, sales acceleration product and ultimately a CRM. And so we've continued to move down the funnel. Most recently, we announced uh, we have a big event every year. It's, I, I can't even call it a conference because my marketing people would get mad at me. They call it an event. It's called Inbound. And we have, obviously, a lot of customers there, but we have a bunch of partners that help us sell and help our customers um, embrace inbound marketing, but also a bunch of prospects as well. And at that event, we actually announced that we're now um, adding a customer uh, product, more of a services product. So once you get that customer, how do you make them a delighted customer? And so at the end of the day, we really want to be that front office platform uh, for the target market we're going after, which is the uh, SMB or the mid-market space, companies with 10 to 2,000 people. And in that space, the, the thing that really differentiates us is the fact that we're all in one and we're really easy to use. Because most of these companies don't have very big IT staff, so they don't want to do a lot of integration and uh, on the back end. They want everything to have the same UI, you know, one one uh, number to call for service, one bill to pay, you know, any way to make it easy for these companies that, you know, are trying to grow fast and have a lot on their plate. I'm curious what advice you might have uh, for other CFOs when it comes to partnering with the CEO. And I'm familiar with HubSpot's uh, CEO who uh, is often on television, or I've caught him a few times on TV, and he's rather provocative, clearly a dynamic uh, personality. What would you uh, tell us about partnering with such a CEO? In general, uh, I like growth. I like. I think it attracts amazing people. It makes uh, it a fun place to, to come to work every day. And in order to have that, you need a, a CEO that really pushes the envelope. Brian Halligan, who you're referring to, 
loves to challenge the status quo. And so he challenges us too. And so the way he and I work well together is as long as, as you set um, parameters that you can work in, we call them guardrails. If you set those ahead of time, it makes decision-making so much easier. So, you know, we set guardrails that we wanted to grow the top line really fast, but we wanted to show incremental improvements on the bottom line. And so he bought into that. And so then when we're in the budgeting or planning cycle or somebody comes up with a initiative, you know, mid-year, that has to fit in the, fra- or fit in the framework that, we, that still delivers on those guardrails. And so at the end of the day, um, as long as, you know, he and I have bought into that, then he can trust me to make sure that we're working within those guardrails. And so it really, it really makes a, a, a really healthy relationship. And uh, obviously it makes it, makes it a lot more fun when, when you're growing at the rates we are. Okay, so as a, as a SaaS company, uh, and I think you've already hinted at a few of the metrics that are important to you, but clearly uh, renewable revenues – but uh, have to believe, and you've already suggested that cash is something you keep a close eye on, I believe. But can you tell us a little bit about cash management, how critical it is to your role? Yeah, so obviously, you know, with the SaaS company, uh, investors are going to look to cash, uh, operating cash flow, given that, you know, the dynamics of taking the money up front and recognizing it over time. Uh, if you're, you know, most SaaS companies, except especially successful ones, uh, cash flow will outstrip uh you know, operating profits. And so from that standpoint, we watch it very closely. We think a lot about billing terms. Um, it's a balance, though. Uh, you know, if we went to uh, require everybody to pay a year up front, I don't think we'd have the velocity or the top-line growth we have right now. And so we've kind of worked on that. Uh, we put some incentives in place so that the salespeople try to get uh, as much up front. But at the same thing, we're not going to penalize them. And so we, we look at uh, operating cash flow. We look at free cash flow. Those are very important uh, metrics for us. We look a lot at the unit economics in the building, the business. Excuse me. Uh, how, much, uh, how much does it cost to acquire a customer, and what's the lifetime value of that customer? And that's one of the things we were pretty transparent about when we went public. You know, when we were we – it's funny uh, in the uh, – with investors, they tend to kind of – back and forth on how important profitability is versus growth. And the time we went public, profitability was much more important. And um, we had to be pretty transparent on what our unit economics were. Look, we're investing heavily because we see the returns we're getting in our business. And so, you know, companies before us hadn't been that transparent. But once we showed them that, they understood it. And then they've seen the incremental progress we've made on the profitability really, uh, I think, drove that point home. And so we look at those unit economics across geographies, international versus domestic. Like I said, we get a a good portion of our business um, from our partner channel versus um, our direct channel, as well as, you know, we have different segments within that mid-market we go after. We look at a lot of that, and depending on where the unit economics is best, that's where we're going to make our investment, add more sales to people, put more marketing dollars. And so uh, that, that's a big part of, of my job as well, to make sure that, you know, we're investing in the areas that have the highest unit economics. And then obviously the last one is retention. I mean, we look at retention a bunch of different ways. We look at customer retention. We look at dollar retention. We look at cohorts. 
So we're really making sure that we're keeping an eye on all the different ways we go to market and all uh, the different channels to make sure uh, everything um, is uh, is looking good. And if there's you know areas that are showing challenges, we'll make some course corrections. What would you tell us about uh, customer lifetime value, which we know is top of mind among uh, SaaS companies? Absolutely, yeah. So we look at yeah we look at what how how our customers are coming in at what value, and then using retention and upsell rates, we uh, forecast that over time to see you know what what it's looking like, and we look at it longitudinal. We look at like I said across uh, go go to market ways and. That's, uh, then you compare that to the, you know, the customer acquisition cost to get that ratio and make sure you're investing in the areas that have the highest uh, returns. Okay, we want to ask you about what we call a, a finance strategic moment or an aha moment where, uh, given your lines of sight into the organization as a finance leader, you were able to see an opportunity or maybe a risk. And uh, which led you to point uh, the organization in a different direction or modify how things were being done. What what would come to mind? Well, I think I build on that idea I talked about when I got here to uh, HubSpot. You know, the the budget was a loose framework, for lack of better terms. I mean, people, you know, didn't necessarily uh, spend it right according to their budgets and. It was, it was understandable because we were growing so fast and, you know, the bot that, you know, all those investments were being covered up with growth. And so when I got here, um, if we were going to be public, that had to change. And so I talked a lot to the team about this idea of uh, balancing growth with profitability. And, you know, if we were going to go out there to the street and say it, then we had to hold ourselves accountable internally and set up a, a process where we could make that happen. And so uh, Brian Halligan, our CEO, bought into that, and he even coined the term, we're going to make the budget a first-class citizen. And so uh, that loose framework went away, and now people had real budgets. And because we were still growing fast and we didn't want to stifle growth, we instead set aside uh, uh, an amount of money each year that we would invest as ideas would come up or, you know, depending on what was doing really well. And uh, we called that the JDBH fund. So BH is Brian Halligan. That's his initials. And our COO, J.D. Sherman, uh, that, that's the JD part of the JDBH. And so the JDBH budget was set up internally, so we set that money aside, and then we had full-throated discussions as a management team, how we were going to spend that money internally and make sure that we were investing in those areas that were going to drive the longer, longest-term value. And, uh, you know, I think that process has worked very well for us. I want to touch on talent with you and discover uh, what, if any, influence you believe the finance leader uh, has on uh, talent today within the company. And, again, I always turn to this uh, – anecdote that uh, we see on the internet where there's a CFO asking his CEO, what, what happens if we spend money training and our people uh, then leave us? And uh, the CEO replies, well, what happens if we don't train them and they stay? Um, and there seems to be this uh, back and forth often. Uh, what, are there certain priorities that you have as a finance leader that influence uh, the workforce today, how it's how it's paid and compensated clearly? 
Yeah, I was, uh, we think about this a lot. When you're growing as fast as HubSpot is, people are critical, especially in a software company. The first thing we try to do is make sure we have the right recruiting team in place so that we can actually bring on very talented people. And, you know, we really hold ourselves to a high bar. We want to bring in just as talented or more talented people the bigger we get. And so we use uh, similar concepts to inbound marketing. We do a lot of our, uh, our recruiting team and our people ops team do a lot of blogging to try to attract a bunch of people to what we're doing. We have a um, culture code that we have codified in a deck um, that's one of the uh, most viewed uh, decks on SlideShare that people review and they're like, wow, I'd like to, I'd like to be a part of that company. That's, a, that's an interesting culture. So really it starts with actually attracting those people. So then the next thing is, then how do we grow those people once we, once we get, once they get here? And we spent a lot of time on that. We have uh, a lot of training classes internally. We actually have a fellows program, which is, you know, a very lightweight MBA program that we put our top uh, leaders in. We have, you know, a very generous tuition reimbursement program. Um, and then we have, we have a monthly dinner that's for our top uh, top individuals where one exec takes people out, which we call the Champions Dinner. And so we do a lot of things to try to identify the top talent. And then once we identify those people, not even not only on the training side, but then we make sure that we're compensating them uh, appropriately. We like to uh, – we, we stole a term from uh, the baseball world, uh, VORP, value of a replacement players. And so basically, from a compensation standpoint, we look at our top performers and we think about what it would take to replace that person. And so we lean into or we you know, pay more, both in cash and equity, to those top performers so that we can build them and grow them and you know, make sure that they stay with us and they're motivated. And you know, it's partly compensation, but it's partly opportunity. And as opportunities come up, we make sure the management team knows who those people are and we give them those opportunities so they can continue to keep growing. Uh, we have our mentoring round now where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor uh, future finance leaders. What's one thing that's exciting you about finance and business today? Yeah, I think it's really the SaaS model. Um, as, a, as a CFO who's lived in a perpetual model where you worry every month or every quarter at the end, whether you're going to hit your numbers uh, and you really lose sleep. In the SaaS model, so much of your revenues and deferred revenue based on things you've sold in the past, it can actually let you take a step back and really plan the business, make investments accordingly. And it really, obviously, is good as a finance leader, but it's obviously good for the company as well. And it's not just on the finance side, but it also keeps you a lot closer to the customer. When a customer can vote with their wallet, when they can stay or leave with you uh, on their annual subscription, you really know what they want. You really know how they're doing. And it keeps you from getting, uh, you know, lazy or, you know, uh, complacent. And so I love that bottle. It's kind of, you know, becoming more and more ubiquitous. But uh, I love that it, it continues, and I think there's – we're going to see it uh, for a long time to come. Can I ask, and just to add a question here, I think it's interesting. You've emphasized the customer, as does you know other SaaS CFOs frequently do. You wanted to do your own research maybe and understand better. 
how those relationships take shape. Is there anything you did? I mean, did you go to, you know, conferences more often? Or how did you uh, assert yourself into the customer experience and get your arms around it? Yeah, so I would say, first of all, being uh, a company focused on the S&B space, inevitably you're going to have friends that have started companies that are going to hopefully buy your product. And that's happened with me a lot. And so I've been able to talk to them and understand their needs. And what we've done as a management team is every monthly management team, obviously we go through a lot of uh, numbers and then we go through our strategic objectives and, uh, you know, our operating plan. But then we also have a uh, customer call at uh, every one of our, um, our our monthly management meetings. And that's, that keeps us uh, focused on uh, what the customer wants. We also have an individual that's pure focus is on uh, our product net promoter score. And he presents at that monthly management meeting. And he has this really cool chart that basically we call the boulder chart. And for, you know, five or six different um, satisfaction measures within the product, he measures whether that is a huge attractor, a, a moderate attractor, or neutral or even, you know, some that are slightly negative, and then puts um, uh, graphs out whether that's moving up, more positive, or down, and how big the boulder is based on how many people mention it. And so it really keeps us focused on what we need to do on the product and service side to try to keep moving those boulders up, uh, you know, moving up. And then the, the ones that, you know, might be down might be very small and very few people mention it. And so it really allows us to stay laser focused on what we're doing to drive customer success. Is there something you wish someone had told you at the start of your CFO career? So I would imagine this might have been at Blackboard when you first, uh, you know, elevated and stepped into that office at the first time for the first time. What would you what would you tell us? Is there a piece of advice you wish someone had given you as you stepped into that office? Well, I think the one thing I would say is that CFOs get too much credit when things go right. And CFOs get too much credit when things don't go so well. And I think that what's interesting thing is about that is that externally people don't really know, you know, how great a job you're doing. If the company's doing well, they presume you're doing well. And if the company's not doing well, they presume you're, you know, have a stake in that. And so I think picking the right companies and ensuring, you know, you're picking companies that, if, if this is your interest, that are growing and gives you a lot of great opportunities, then you will have an opportunity to grow. And, uh, uh, you know, from an external standpoint, you know, people will understand or even give you credit for, for that success. And ultimately, you know, you're going to have more fun as well. But I think it's, it's really that, you know, perception you're going to get based on where you go. And so don't make short-term decisions based on getting, you know, another small uh, increase in money or like that. Think about the long-term opportunities and the rest of that will take care of itself uh, if, you're, if you pick the right uh, company to go to. Do you have a personal habit that you feel has contributed to your professional success? Yeah, I don't know if I'd call it a habit as much as a behavior or something I do. I'm, I'm a pretty good networker, which, you know, for CFOs, you know, a lot of CFOs are pretty introverted, but, you know, they, they don't spend the time on that. 
And, you know, I understand that there's times, obviously, I've got a lot of other things going on with my job and personal and everything like that. But making those relationships, staying with them, you can then use those relationships when something comes up at work. There could be something, you know, from, uh, uh, you know, maybe you're looking at a product and you want to get somebody else's opinion. Or, you know, you have a, a problem, you can work, use your network. Or it's fun to connect a bunch of people, you know, in your network that might be having, you know, different issues or somebody that's looking for an opportunity. But that, that connectedness and, uh, you know, at the end of the day, we all would love to see our, our colleagues do well. And um, I, I really enjoy that networking. And I really would tell um, people early in their career to really spend that time and stay in touch with those people in your network. Uh, you know, if it's every six or 12 months, just drop, drop somebody a note, see how they're doing, ask them a question. With LinkedIn, obviously, it makes it so much easier to stay in touch with people. But I think it's really important. Is there a book you'd recommend to aspiring finance leaders? Yeah, so I actually just read The Third Wave by Steve Case. Steve Case was the uh, CEO of AOL, and uh, he, I'm uh, – I'm a DC guy at heart, and uh, I was able to meet Steve Case recently. Fascinating guy, you know. Took uh, really took AOL to the pinnacle um, in the day, and then sold it to Time Warner. He has a very interesting book about this third wave that uh, the business world's going through. Really, the transition into the information age. Uh, a lot of it, you know, um, is, is stuff that we kind of think about, but putting it in print and really thinking about how that's impacting our lives are really important. Another thing he talks about is this idea he has of rise of the rest. He's, he's really looking for those entrepreneurs outside of the, you know, the top markets, not just, you know, on the West Coast or, you know, some of the, the East Coast tech hubs, trying to find those entrepreneurs throughout the rest of the, the country and really – spending time with them and investing in them and, you know, getting a, a more diverse uh, a set of um, ideas out there because there's obviously a lot of areas that you can, uh, you can disrupt or, you know, start a company in, and he wants to help people do it. So I really found it as a, it's a quick read, but I thought it was very interesting. John, I also saw that you're going to be participating in the MIT Sloan CFO Summit uh, next month in Boston. What uh, will you be discussing? How are you going to be participating? Yeah, so uh, really excited to be on a panel at the summit. It's fun. I've gone to it several times, and now to actually be a panelist. I'm, I'm looking forward to being a panelist, but I'm also looking forward to a bunch of the other sessions. Uh, so I am actually um, on a panel about M&A and how to put the right team together when you bring people in, what different functions you want to do, bring in to make sure it's successful. And so, um, you know, great panel. We've already had our first meeting. Really looking forward to digging in on that topic and giving some people some things they can take away from and make sure that uh, their acquisitions are really successful. Thought Leader listeners, you can join HubSpot CFO John Kinzer as well as other finance leaders at next month's MIT Sloan CFO Summit, November 16th at the Boston Marriott in Newton, Mass. We'll be back after these words from our sponsor.
You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. John, thank you again for participating with us. We are finally here. It is our final question. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? Yeah, I think the, the, the thing we're really working on here internally is you know, we started as a marketing company, we got into sales, and now we're getting into service. It's really that multi-product aspect, balancing uh, selling into the install base versus new customers, um, thinking about that dynamics when people have those multiple products, how does it impact retention, how does it uh, impact our ARPUs, how do we set comp plans to make sure that we're incentivizing the right behavior there, and just making sure the whole company is working towards that. So I think that's the kind of the number one goal. And then a close second or a 1B to the 1A is we're also moving more and more into the premium model. So basically try before you buy. Let the product sell itself. Um, giving value to a customer before you extract value. So I think that we see more and more, we all love to, you know, try things like Spotify and other uh, or Dropbox, and then um, if we like it, then we're happy to pay for it. And the economics in that, that model can be great if you look at a company like Atlassian. I mean, they have, they're very profitable and they're growing very fast, and they have very little salespeople because they, they do so much in the freemium business. And so... You know, how can we balance premium with our old, with our inside sales team and make sure that, you know, long term we're, we're striking the right balance and that all those channels still deliver great ROI and, uh, you know, putting the metrics and the operating uh, framework in place to make sure that uh, we're maximizing those, those options. John Kinzer, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.